If you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, we're going to read a few verses on this particular theme and then go into another passage and look at it kind of verse by verse. Exodus chapter 17, verse number 3. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And this is the place where um, Moses had struck, had to strike the rock to get water for the people. But we all know they listened. They got excited. They did things. Then, then on the step, turn on turn of a dime, you know, they could they could just turn, rebel and complain and be angry, discontent. It didn't take long, you know, much to upset them, and and they they didn't have faith at this point. Not much. Judges chapter fifteen, another instance. But you know, when you're when you're thirsty. And I do appreciate this little bottle of water up here, and I'm going to remind you of it a few times during the message that I have water. <laughs> I don't want to engender a jealousy on your part. But you know, water is really precious. Where would we be? We'd all be dead if we didn't have water. And thankfully, God provided an abundance of it. And I will say, I think it's something we should be careful not to waste. As part of God's resources, we're supposed to be good stewards of these things. In Judges chapter 15 and verse number 18, it says, And he was sore athirst, and called on the Lord, and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die for thirst, and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? This, of course, is Samson. He'd killed a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. Earlier, when the people were complaining that they were going to die of thirst, God told Moses to strike a rock, and water was provided for them out of a rock. And here, Samson's complaining about thirst, and God made a hollow place in this jawbone that he'd used to kill a thousand men. And he put water in there. For Samson. And in fact, there might have been water all along for him. Might have been there just waiting for him. God can give us water. Amen? He can give us what we need. In Ruth, chapter 2, verse number 9, Ruth was told by Boaz, when you get thirsty, go to our young men, and the young men will provide for you. In Isaiah 55, we see a wonderful passage, beautiful, beautiful wording of God's provision. Isaiah chapter 55, verse number 1. O every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come to the waters. Come to the waters. God made us a people who need water. And I guess part, most of our bodies, they say, are water. Like 75% or something like that. Isn't it? It doesn't seem right, does it? <laughs> and yet it's a fact. Chemically speaking, we are 75% water. So we need to be replenished with the thing, with that thing. And God doesn't want us to have to be thirsty. He wants us to come and satisfy that thirst. In Luke chapter 4, well, excuse me, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 16, there was a, a man described as being in hell, and he says, I'm tormented in this flame. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Oh, if I just had one or two drops, just a drop of water, please, oh Lord, Abraham, please send him for one, with one drop of water. Can you imagine being that thirsty and hoping for only one drop? And of course, hell is a place where there is no hope that's answered. There's nothing to be hopeful for. Everything this man asked for, 
was refused. No, 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 no. Which makes me think it is the exact opposite of heaven where everything will be answered. <laughs> it's a place of total, absolute contentment because everything we need will be provided. Everything we desire, desire will be provided. Can you imagine that? It's beyond, I mean, it's beyond anything we can experience here. Then we come down to John chapter 4, and this is the passage I want to deal with for quite a while. John chapter 4. Jesus, of course, talking to the one we refer to as the woman at the well. It says, <clears throat> verse number 3, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. And I've heard preachers get up and say, it's not the fact that there was something special he wanted to do in Samaria. It was just that Samaria was en route to where they were going in Galilee. It just happened to be along the way. I've heard people say that. And yet, most of us, when we read this, it comes across that there's someone there he needs to see. <laughs> Isn't that true? It's on our hearts, it's on our minds, and it's obvious from just the, the flow of the context here. And it's just, I, he must needs go through Samaria. There's someone he must needs talk to. There's someone he knows about there who will respond to his truth. And it wasn't just that. He was teaching his disciples something. The disciples, they were sent into the town to buy food. And if you know the story about the Jews and the Samaritans, you know that they had issues, they were... They despised each other. And for them to come and have to buy food from people that they despised, that would have been a trick. That would have been a lesson for them. But you know what? God loves the Samaritans. One of the first mission trips was by Philip, I believe, going down into the city of Samaria and preaching Christ unto them. Jesus told his church, you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. We get uptight about the things going on in our day, about the people in Egypt and Jordan and Iraq and Iran, and you know what? God loves those people too, surprisingly. <laughs> What's surprising is he loves us. I have to say it. It's surprising that he loves us. I look at myself and I say, I'm a sinner. Why would he care? And yet he does. There's a woman at this well. Why would he care? And yet he does. So here they are challenged. The disciples are challenged to face their prejudices and go into the city and buy food from people they despise. <laughs> I kind of get a, a, a kick out of this. And Jesus, meanwhile, goes to see a woman. Verse number 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which would be noon. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. And this, of course, is a uh, big issue because Samaritans were not like Jews. They were part Jew, part Gentile. They had been intermingled, and over the centuries, they had just become a people unto themselves. In South Africa, we have uh, white people, we have black people, we have Asians. Uh, they, some, they call them Indians because most are from India. And they have another group called coloreds. And they're not white, they're not black, they're a mixture of the two. Some of them have Asian blood in them. And these people don't want to associate with them. These people don't want to associate with them. They just are a group unto themselves. And we can kind of identify with this thing here and what we've seen over there. Yet at one point, my, one of my wife's best friends, very best friend, was a, a colored woman. And uh, they face a lot of challenges, a lot of problems, a lot of issues. One of their biggest problems is alcohol addiction. 
there was a time in Africa's history where the wine industry was a big, big deal. It was in the Western Cape area, and many of the colors were, colors were situated there. And in payment for their labors during the week, they were paid with produce, the, the stock, wine. And they became drunkards. And it just went on generation after generation after generation. And it's a, it's a huge mission field. Tragic, tragic lives of these people. Appreciate you praying for that. But here Jesus is walking up to this woman. And he says to this woman who Jews normally would distance themselves from, he says, give me to drink. Give me to drink. Verse number nine. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. He says, Jews and Samaritans, if they're coming down the road, you know, they'll stay on opposite sides of the road if they're meeting each other or they're walking along. They don't want to touch each other. They don't want to talk to each other. Every once in a while you see them mingled a little bit, like the ten lepers. One of them was a Samaritan, right? And all ten of them in their misery, in their miserable condition, all ten of them were associating together. And it's interesting that it was the Samaritan who turned around and praised God. In any case, they just don't mingle under normal circumstances. It's only under extreme situations. But God, if I can say it like this, is not a racist. It's interesting to read in the Bible, for example, some of the passages, the prophetic passages where he speaks of Egypt and how he loves them. And in a sense, in a prophetic sense, speaking maybe of a future day, he says, they are my children. Isn't that, isn't that strange? Because we look at Egypt and we think, boy, they're, they're such a knot-headed people. They're such, such so contrary to God's chosen people, the Jews, and, and yet... God's doing, doing things over there, working in hearts and lives, winning people to Christ over there and up in Lebanon and over in across, across the Arab uh, landscape. People are turning to Christ. But here we see this racial pride getting in the way and just need to point out, it proves that God is not, as we would term it, racist. Jesus said, answered and saith unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Boy. I preached a message one time. The gift of God. For if thou knewest. If thou knewest. When I got saved... One of the things that I was hoping for was to finally have some victory in my life. One of the things I was looking for was to have an have a, a attitude and a confidence like those Christians did. Because they knew where they were going when they died. Having a fellowship like they had. Because they were all buddies and friends. And I knew I didn't have it. I was lonely and I was defeated. And I looked at my own life and I thought, there's nothing about my life that, that's really good. It's not going in the right direction. I have no aim in my life. And those people over there, look at them. They're different. They're different. They're different. But just looking at those things and telling you those few things that I thought about, <laughs> that's not even the top of the surface. You know, the, the skimming. That's not even skimming the surface to all that's entailed in salvation. That's, that's all, to all that's entailed in the gift of God. The gift of God includes so much more than we could possibly comprehend. And Jesus said, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God, you'd ask me for a drink. And you know what? Sometimes we don't meditate on enough. We don't think enough about how wonderful this salvation really is. 
Say, yeah, it's nice to be not to have to go to hell. It's nice to be assured that we will go to, 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 with the Lord to be in heaven after we die and to spend eternity with him. That's a good thing. Amen. But that's just a tiny, tiny bit of it, folks. One of the greatest things that happens after a person gets saved, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not just a mark. That's the presence of a person. I went to, went to go to work the next day after uh, I'd gotten saved on a Sunday night and someone said something or did something that kind of got, got me my goat. And I was angry and I swore. And I don't think I had the day before. Maybe I, prob- I probably did. <clears throat> but every day before that of my life, as in my adulthood, I, was, I, I used blasphemy. I swore. I cursed. I said foul things. But when I swore that day, after I'd been saved, something, it was different. It was like, it was like my heart was being squeezed. I don't mean in a physical way, but it was like, you've taken an oath. You've used your Savior's name in an offensive way. And it just, it crushed me. I feel so terrible. And it happened one more time that day. But I'm just saying, God's Holy Spirit's presence is more than just a mark. It's a person living with you. A holy person. A holy person with power. A holy person who speaks to you and leads in your life. That's just one of the things that we get with this wonderful gift. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith that they give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him and he would have given me living water. And I can give you that living water. I think some of you maybe heard that testimony of my dad when he was on ship on the Enterprise. And there was this one man who had been a witness to him. And my dad and two other men, they were mocking my dad. Excuse me, they were mocking this other man. My dad was one of the mockers. And my dad called him Jesus' little lamb. <laughs> oh, that's awful, isn't it? <laughs> but you know what? They were called to their duty stations, and while my dad was called away and he reported to his duty station, he thought, you know, I shouldn't have said that. I need to apologize for that one next time I see him. But they were called to their duty stations, and my dad was up here. The other man he persecuted was down along the side of the ship. He was working with an anti-aircraft crew, and they were firing at, this anti- at the planes coming into attack. And during the process of that conflict, that man and all of his crew were killed. My dad never got his chance to apologize, but he said, he had something I don't have. You know what? That salvation, and it has so much with it, so much with it, it causes the, the, the Christian to be the envy, even though they won't recognize it, even though they won't admit it, it causes them to be the envy of the rest of the world. If thou knewest the gift of God. And I would have given you living water. We need water. Which reminds me, I have some. (laughs) It's good. Are you thirsty? The Bible tells us that when God made us, you know, he made us in his image. But he made us, gave us a body. He gave us a body. And that body, like I said before, is mostly water. And we need to retain and maintain the level of fluids in our body. And the best thing for us to drink is water. I want you to turn to me, keep a place here. We'll come back to it. But let's turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. It says in verse number one, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. It's said in this little introduction to this psalm that this took place when David was in the wilderness of Judea. 
And if that's the case, it seems like it maybe fell in line with the time when Absalom had chased David, his father, out of Jerusalem. And here he is over in the east, east part of Jerusalem, east of there, which is called the Wilderness of Judea. I've been there a few times, and you know what? It's about the most ugly, desolate place in the world. <laughs> the last time I was there, all I remember seeing was just rocks, dirt, sand, nothing. Couldn't, didn't see much. There. Goats were walking around, and they found a little tuft of grass here and there that they ate up and, to make sure there was no more grass the next day. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's bad. It's bad. And he says, oh, God, I'm in this dry and thirsty land where no water is. But I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsting for you. And I don't know how much he prayed before he had to leave Jerusalem. I don't know if he was seeking God then, but he's sure seeking him now. We need water. And they tell us we're supposed to drink two to three liters a day. Right? Right? And they tell us, too. I, I was watching a golf tournament one time, and, and a commentator was talking about one of the uh, walk, uh, golfers. And he stopped, and he took a sip of water, took a little drink, and he said, we always need to keep our bodies hydrated. This is a fact. And he said, and if you wait until you're thirsty, you've waited too long. Thirst means you are not having enough. You need to fill up. So you need to keep your body full of water. You need to be drinking it to the point where you never get thirsty. Does that make sense? I don't know. <laughs> but there's a parallel there. We turn to God too often when we get into trouble or we have a problem. But do you know when we need God? All the time. We need him when things are going bad, but we also need him when everything's okay. We don't, there's never a time when we don't need him in our life. His, his, his presence uh, in us should be like that water, and we just go to him constantly. We walk with him all day. Things are going great. Well, praise the Lord. Walk with him through the day. Make sure he's present in your life. We need him. We need him. Don't wait till you get into trouble to start praying. When you're not in trouble, that's a good time to pray for others. You know, we get kind of selfish sometimes, don't we? I'm praying because I need help. Well, why weren't you praying for someone else when you didn't need help? That's a good opportunity to intercede. Pray for them. Think about others. Think about God's glory. <clears throat> in any case, this woman had a thirst a dissatisfaction, she had an absence of peace, and she knew it. And Jesus spoke to her in a way that kind of made her more conscious of this fact in her life. She had a thirst that, that, that needed quenching. She had a need inside that wasn't satisfied, that wasn't resolved. Well, let's go on here. In verse number 11, The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, and whence... From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. In a sense... <clears throat> This woman is saying to Jesus, well, I don't know who you think you are. We have a, gel that, uh, a well that was given to us by the great Jacob. And we've been drinking from this for hundreds of years. And sure enough, Jacob had been in that area, and this probably was Jacob's well, and he had passed it on to whoever would be living there after them. Some of those people were Jewish, and then they intermingled with others. But she's saying... To Jesus, you don't have anything to draw with, and this well is deep. But this has been our water source for over a thousand years. Jacob gave us this well. This well has served us okay. But Jesus was kind of implying, this water won't resolve your problems. 
this water won't deal with the issues that you have deep down inside. It may quench your thirst and so that your physical person is satisfied for the moment, but this isn't the water I'm talking about. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about a living water. You will thirst again after drinking this, but I can give you a water that you will never, ever thirst again. And if he's talking about a spiritual water, he's talking about a spiritual satisfaction. There's a lot of people out there today that think once you get saved, you have to be careful and guard it and protect it because you might lose it. Let me tell you something. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. In fact, I remember the night I was saved. I was lying in my bunk in the barracks over at Grand Forks Air Base, and I thought, it's all settled for eternity. And that's the last thought I remember. And I maybe went to sleep right after that. It was wonderful. I tell you, it was just wonderful knowing it was settled forever and ever and ever and ever. There's no sin that you can commit that will cause God to regret it and take it back. There's no sin that you can commit and confess that he doesn't put it aside, he doesn't wipe it away, and never, ever remembers it again. I heard a song a while back, and it's had a quote in there. <laughs> and it says, I can't wait till I can't remember what he forgot. Does that make sense? I can't wait till I can't remember what he forgot. In other words, God forgot all my sins, and I can't wait till the day that I forget them too. The only, the only problem with that is it doesn't tell us that God forgets our, our, our sins. It says he won't remember them. He won't remember them. He says this himself, I will not remember them. And that is an absolute ongoing choice of his. He won't remember it because Jesus paid for those sins. He washed them away, and he paid for them so effectively, God says, I'll never bring that up again, ever, ever, ever. Someone accuses me of any sins, I'm pointing to Christ and his payment for those sins. You know what? When Jesus was talking about the greatness of the gift of God, when he was referring to that, it really is an amazing thing, amen? Praise the Lord. He won't remember our sins ever, ever again. <clears throat> but you drink of this water here that Jacob provided for the people who lived there, and sure enough, they thirst again. And this woman, no doubt, had to go to that well every single day, get a water pot full, take it back to town, and... She and hers or whatever, they would, they would live off this. Maybe they didn't go on a Sabbath day. I don't know. But they went again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And any kind of satisfaction you get from this world is going to be about the same way. It's not going to be lasting. But once you trust Christ, once you're a believer, it's settled forever. Well, we get down here to verse number 15. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She's finally recognizing, hey, this sounds like pretty good stuff. I'd like some. Give me this water. Well, they're dealing with different things, you know. Traditions, they're dealing with uh, religion, they're dealing with uh, racial differences and so on. Then now they're dealing with sin. Sin. In verse number 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. <laughs> the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, we sometimes think we can slip one by the Lord, don't we? But on a technicality, well, I didn't, I didn't really do that in my heart, but we're not going there. Maybe you did something in your heart, but you didn't really say the word or didn't really do the act uh, of anger or hatred you felt towards somebody else. But in your heart, it was there. Say, well, I, I didn't mean to do it. You know, we, we make all kinds of excuses. 
But but and she said, Well, I, I really don't I really don't have a husband when she was telling the truth. She was living with a man that she wasn't married to. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. He knows she's not technically married at that point. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidst thou truly. Yeah, I know, you really don't have a husband right now. You're living with someone you're not married to. You've had five husbands in the past. And she's blown away. How does he know that? Well, he knows all things. He knows all things. And I'm, you know what? It's really a blessing to know that he knows. You think you're keeping things secret from other people that you associate with, but you need to be thankful that God knows. And you can take your burdens to him. You can take your cares to him. You're not surprising him when you confess your sin. You're not surprising him. You can go to him with all your burdens, all your cares, all your fears, all your doubts, and you can go to him with all your troubles and struggles, all your failings, and you can confess it all to him. And he says, good, 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 good. Praise the Lord. We got that behind us. Now let's go on. This woman had been a sinner. And she was currently in sin. It's in, it implied, the whole story implies that Jesus went there simply because of her. Because of her. And her sin was renowned. I mean, they, you've heard this before. Why else would a woman go at the hottest time of the day where the sun is the most blaring? Why would you go to draw water and do that type of labor at the hottest time of the day? Well, nobody else would go at that time. And she was ashamed. And everybody looked down on her. She was an immoral woman. A woman and who apparently she had married, didn't work out. So she married again, 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 and it didn't work out. Literally five times, five times. And maybe she was one who thought, well, if I could just marry the right man, all my problems will be solved. <laughs> well, you should marry the right man, yes, amen. But that's not going to solve your problems. Your problems are you. It's you. And you're a sinner. And you need to get your sin resolved between you and God. You need to get that sin taken away. You need to have that removed. You need to have God's Holy Spirit come and dwell in your heart. You need Jesus' forgiveness. You need to accept his payment for your sins. The Bible tells about how sin causes a barrier between us and God. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were enjoying every, every evening that it happened. That God would come down, and he would fellowship with them. He would walk with them and teach them things. Amen. Can you imagine how wonderful that was? <clears throat> but in Isaiah 59, 1, it tells about how our iniquities cause a division between us and God. We are separated from God by our sin. Let's look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verses 13 and following. <clears throat> Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Don't kid yourself. Sin is a serious thing. It's an offensive thing to God. We can't play around with it. We can pretend like it's not going to hurt us. What are the wages of sin? death. If you could live your entire life having committed only one little inoffensive sin, inoffensive to the world in general, one time, just one time, you'd be condemned to be forever separated from God throughout eternity 
because of that one, what we think of as little, sin. Sin's a big deal. Sin's a big deal. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's turn there. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse number 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, thank you, God. Jesus Christ became, he took my sins upon himself so that he could give me his righteousness. And most people don't take him up on this. Most people don't take advantage of this. They don't, they don't receive that gift of God. Shame, shame on us people. We're so hard-hearted and proud, so stubborn. Some people see, receive it. But this woman clearly was a sinner. Jesus knew it. All of her people knew it. And still he cared. And she honestly feared or faced her sinfulness. She, she had lived, going out there noonday in the hot of the sun. Oh, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. I don't want to have to do this. You know, Jesus was making a way of her to mingle, actually to mingle with all the other people of Samaria and be accepted. Sin sends people to hell. Sin sent Jesus to the cross. Sin keeps people from God. But Jesus' cross keeps people from death and hell, making them forever God's children. Let's go back to John chapter 4, verse number 20. Now she's bringing up a religious issue. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. We worship, we know, or ye worship, ye know not what. We, wor- we, know, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And there had been, at one time, a temple in Samaria. And they had their own Pentateuch. And they had their own priest. Jerusalem was the true place for the temple, was the true place for the Pentateuch, was the true place for the high priest. But there was this competitive religion up there. The temple, I don't think, was in existence at this point, but they still had the tradition of worshiping in that mountain. And so there was this competitive thought. They said, well, the Jews, they say we ought to worship there, but we've always worshiped here. We always worshiped here. And so now Jesus is, is confronting her and dealing with, I guess, the, uh, the fact of religion. And there's so many people that hang on to that old religion. They hang on to that old religion and think, this, this is what I've always been taught. This is what I'm used to. But if they could follow that through, they would say, and I'm still thirsty. <laughs> because the old religion doesn't satisfy the soul. We go a little bit farther, though, and we get down to a wonderful point. Verse number 25, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. You know, it almost seems like she should have recognized him. <laughs> He's the one that knew all things, right? But she didn't, she didn't see it yet. And that's one of the problems we have, blindness. Even saved people can have a problem seeing clearly. Pride gets in the way. Sin gets in the way. Fear gets in the way. Unbelief gets in the way. But this woman, she couldn't see clearly. And <clears throat> basic, basically she's saying, oh, when the, when the Messiah comes, he'll teach us all these things about uh, which mountain to worship at and what the real truth is. And, and 
Verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. You know, this is, this is so wonderful, this verse right here. I am him. I am him. Back in, I think it's John chapter 9, Jesus was dealing with a blind man. And the blind man, after he was healed, he got into trouble with the leaders of the temple and the, and the common people. His, his parents were brought in and they said, the, the leader said, is this your child who you say was born blind? How did he get healed? And they said, well, this is our child and he was born blind, but how he got healed, I don't know. And they were afraid of those powerful Jewish leaders. And they said, ask him, he's old enough and don't, don't trouble us. <laughs> Don't trouble us. Ask him. Later on, after they had excommunicated that man from the temple, Jesus found him and he said, Do you believe on the Son of God? And he said, Who is? It's the blind man who had been healed. He asked this blind man, Do you believe on the Son of God? And he says, Well, who is he that I can believe on? And he said, it, it's, it is he that speaketh unto thee. And he believed. And he got saved right then and there. You know what? Here he says, I am he. I am he. And that's all it took. And that woman said, I believe. She didn't say it, okay? She did it. We read on here. <laughs> Verse number 27. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but sometimes when I've been dealing with people and they've come forward and I'm trying to deal with them, all of a sudden something happens. And it got, you know, some got this interruption takes place it says verse 27 and upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman yet no man said why seekest what what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men come see a man which told me all things that ever i did is not this the christ so She's dealing with Jesus. Then she, Jesus points to himself and he says, I am the Messiah. I am this one you're looking for. And then the disciples come in and disrupt. But it wasn't enough to totally throw things off track because they're talking with Jesus and all of a sudden she says it's him. And she puts down her water pot and she runs into town and you know the story. She says, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did is not this to Christ. And she's out there, she's been saved, she believed on him, and she's witnessing, and she's bringing people, and people are listening to her, and some are challenging her, and some are questioning her, and some are, some are saying, okay, okay, I look, I, you look different already. Something's changed you. And a whole crowd came out there, and they were visiting with these people for a couple of days. They said, don't leave us, teach us more, teach us more. And many people believed. All this because Jesus talked to this woman about a thirst. <clears throat> There's a movie I haven't seen for years, but I kind of like to see it again. It's called Ben-Hur. You ever seen that? This old 1950s version, Charlton Heston. He's accused of a crime by a man who had been his friend, and <clears throat> he's taken off to be a, a galley slave. And along the way, he falls down, and he's just innocent. Falsely accused, but he's thirsty. And the guards are letting all the others drink water except him. No water for him. And a stranger comes up and gives him water. And he looks at this stranger, and he, he won't forget that face. He just, he just remembers this man gave him water and gave him a hope to live. And sometime later in the story, some years later in the story, he says, someone gave me water at one point, and I've thirsted ever since. And that's the way life is. That's the way life is. You can satisfy it momentarily, but it doesn't really take care of the real problem. The real problem. You need the living water. We had a old woman. She was a Lutheran, <clears throat> and we went over to have Bible studies with her. She was, I think, 60 at the time, or 80, I can't remember. <laughs> but she got saved. 
Then she came to get baptized the day that we had a baptismal service. And here she was stepping down into this baptistry and she said, I'm going to die. Old rickety woman, you know, just going down these steps. And she got baptized. She was saved. She got baptized. She was thirsty. She got her thirst quenched. Baptism didn't quench her thirst. Being saved, being trusting Christ did. We had another old woman. She was living up the road and at her place, her husband, and maybe she as well, they sold beer. They had a little uh, grandchild, I think, that stayed with them. And these dirty old men would come and buy beer there, and then they would play around with the little granddaughter. And I don't mean play around in a nice way. This little girl thought, playing is one person lying on top of the other. And she would play with other kids. That's the way she would play, because that's the only kind of play she knew. This old woman, though, that lived there, she came to a service. And I remember during the invitation, she's just looking up at me. Can I have this too? Me too? Me? I said, come on. And she came forward, trusted Christ. John Botillo, I told you about him. I said maybe I'll mention him. <laughs> this guy was uh, another Lutheran. Worked at the gas station. I tried to talk to him when I was getting gas, but the boss would get angry with him talking to a customer or the server, you know, the gas pump attendants. When they were talking with, with customers, he would get angry. And though it might have been a white-black thing, I don't know, this was in the days of apartheid or right after. But one day I saw John walking down the road, and I thought, well, here I get a chance to talk. I picked him up, gave him a lift, drove him to work. And I said, would you be interested in having some Bible studies? He said, yes. His English wasn't really good. And I asked Brother Zebulon to go by and have the studies with him. And he went through lesson number one and lesson number two and lesson number three, and John was getting under conviction. And he thought, in the flesh, he thought, tomorrow when he comes, I won't be here. I'm going to leave before he gets here. And so there was a day that was scheduled for lesson number four, and, and uh, Brother John was going to be away, and Brother Zebulon was already on his way, but John overslept. He overslept. He didn't wake up in time to get away in time. He was just outside of his house locking the door when Brother Zebulon rolled up on his bicycle. <laughs> and they had lesson number four. And that day, John trusted Christ. That evening, he told his girlfriend that we didn't know even existed. He told her, God has changed me. I'm a different man. You have to go home to your mother. His thirst was quenched. You know, whatever. <laughs> Look at Psalm 143. Psalm 143, we'll be just about finished here. <clears throat> Psalm 143, verse number 6. <clears throat> I stretch forth my hands unto thee, my soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Selah. Isn't this what we need? Jesus Christ isn't he the one who's going to satisfy our, our, our souls? And even after you're saved, you can try to look for satisfaction in other things, but it's only in Christ. He's the only thing that's going to make you content. I've been reading about manna, and maybe talk some more about that tonight, Lord willing. But people would eat, and they would find satisfaction, and then they'd get hungry again. Sometimes they would let their, their eyes drift or their thoughts drift toward other foods and they would, they would say, boy, I remember the fish we ate when we were in Egypt. Boy, life was really good then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, go back to servitude and slavery and life, your life being restricted and then you can have fish. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful life. 
We had leeks and garlics and onions and melons. We had all the foods we could hope for. Now all we have is this manna. And they were dissatisfied with that miraculous food. And shame on us when we become dissatisfied with the life that Jesus wants us to have. Because it's really the only one that's going to be satisfactory. The only one. Jesus, and I'm, I'm tempted to say, he shouldn't have come to earth. For his own good, for his own sake, for his own uh, well-being, he shouldn't have come and involved himself in our big problems. That's a human version or, or a human viewpoint. And in my heart, I'm, I'm so thankful that he did come. I'm thankful that he came and, came and was willing to be despised. I'm thankful that he came and was willing to be rejected and persecuted and insulted. But while he was hanging on that cross, this creator of all things, he spoke two words that are very, very sad. I thirst. I thirst. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. <clears throat> The one who created all the, the, the wor water in the world, world is mostly water, right? We are mostly water. Living things are mostly water. He created all this. He created the atmosphere. He created the, the water that was above, the water that was below. He caused the great flood. All this was part of his creation. And here he is hanging on this cross. And probably because he lost so much blood, he's crying out, I thirst, I thirst. And his humanity was tormented. But the Creator came, thirsted and died a shameful death so that we would never have to thirst again. Think about that. Ever since I've been saved, I haven't wanted any other religion. I haven't wanted any other faith. There have been times where I took my eyes off Christ and walked in the flesh and I found myself discontent and unhappy. But you know what? I can always go back to him and confess my sins. And he says, now it's gone, it's from the past. Come on, let's fellowship. Let me show you what you need to do. Are you thirsty? As a lost person, you might be thirsty for the one thing that can quench that thirst. Or even if you're a saved person, you might be not walking with God in a way that you are enjoying that fellowship. You're not content with it. Maybe you're looking around and thinking what else could, you could have in your life. Maybe you're like eating the manna, but you're thinking back on the leeks and the garlics and the onions. Maybe you're missing or, or desiring what you used to have. And I, I, I have to tell you this, I have never for a moment, not even for a split second, wished that I hadn't gotten saved. Ever, 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 ever. But there have been times where I did kind of look back and partook in some of the things that I did when I was lost. And I felt shame and guilt. But I can tell you, you can have confidence in Christ. You can have what? Satisfaction. He's everything you need. And I want you to, to invite you this morning to, to consider that, to seriously consider that, whether you're saved, whether you're lost. He is everything you need. Let's pray.